Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Genesis and from Revelation. We'll turn firstly to Genesis chapter 1 and we'll read a couple of verses, verse 26 through to 28. Genesis 1 verse 26, the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We now turn to chapter 49 of Genesis, and we'll start reading at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. We now turn to Revelations chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Our text for this morning's sermon is verse 5 of this chapter. And one of the elders said to me, that is John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The sermon I'm allowed to read this morning is from the hand of Reverend C. Bowman. In response to the sermon, we'll sing from hymn 7, verses 1, 2, 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 5 hinges on tears. First, tears that run freely, then tears dried up. That there's tears is rather amazing, for the chapter we read follows hard on the heels of chapter 4, that chapter where God Almighty is presented in all his glory, seated on the throne of heaven, and the creatures of earth praise him with eagerness. And John himself is in heaven to observe it all. God on the throne. That should mean that John shouldn't have a tear in his eyes. But look, he weeps. John in heaven, so very aware of the goings-on on earth, so troubled by the political and ecclesiastical developments of his day, weeps. And if John wept in his day, congregation, should we not weep today? Remember, 
September 11, the anniversary today, the Bali bombings, Madrid, suicide bombers in the Middle East seek to destroy coalition efforts to destroy terrorism and oppression, but coalition soldiers themselves falling to abusing Iraqi prisoners of war, the war between China and Ukraine, the media that is obsessed with sex and liberal thinking and the world buys it all. Any talk that condemns homosexuality is now classed as hate language. Offenders being prosecuted. Same-sex marriages are allowed. Abortions prolific. And what will life be like for the children we are today bearing and raising? Will they in 20 or 30 years' time be able to serve God with the freedom we do? A look at the world today, some thought about the world tomorrow, it's enough to make one weep. And that's to say nothing of the trouble in the churches, the weaknesses that abound. We join John's weeping. Our Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Our chapter tells us what happened in heaven as a result of his ascension. What happened was enough to dry up John's tears, and ours also. Jesus' ascension, it's reason to celebrate. I summarise the sermon with this theme, the ascension of the Lamb dries the tears of men. We'll see firstly the cause of the tears, and secondly the answer to the tears. John was weeping. That, brothers and sisters, is because of what he had just seen. The God whom he had seen on his glorious throne in chapter 4 had stretched out his right hand. John had seen it. And in his hand was a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. A scroll. That's a parchment rolled up. This particular one had writing on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. A seal. The ancient used wax to keep the rolled up scroll from unrolling and to show that no unauthorised person had opened the scroll, the wax impressed with the ring of the sender. This scroll didn't have one seal, but seven to keep it together, sealed. John knew what was written in the scroll. After all, back in chapter 4 verse 1, the voice had invited John to come into heaven to see the things which must take place. That's what's written on this scroll. The things that must take place. God's plan for what is to happen in history. No, not Old Testament history, but the future from John's day onward. John saw the scroll in God's outstretched hand. That is, God was offering it. Why would the Lord do that? The point is, the Lord God wanted someone to take the scroll and open it. That's clear from the words of the strong angel. John saw in verse 2, This strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Notice what the angel asks, 
Who, he says, is worthy to open? That is, who has the necessary qualifications? For yes, qualifications are required. After all, the scroll is in God's hand. So the question is, who is worthy to approach God? And that takes a special somebody to approach him. For according to chapter 4 verse 5, God has impressive guards around his throne. There are thunders and lightnings and voices. How terrifying. Remember Israel's response at Mount Sinai when God approached them with his thunders and lightnings? They were terrified. Further, according to verse 6, there are living creatures, cherubim around the throne, and yes, they perform the function of guards. Remember the cherubim God placed at the Garden of Eden after the fall into sin. And the cherubim which had to be embroidered on the veil of the tabernacle. They had to guard the way into the presence of God. Who is worthy to open the scroll? asked the angel. And the first implication is whether anyone is able to approach God. But there is a second aspect to the question. For when God offers the scroll, the point is not only whether someone can get past the angels and into God's presence to lift the scroll from his hand, the point is also whether anyone can open it, that is, whether anyone can make God's plan for the world to happen. That, obviously, is a tall order. What was so disturbing now was the response to the call of the angel. For no one came forward. The angel, according to the form of the Greek, did not call just once, but kept on calling again and again. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? No one replied. Verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one in heaven. How amazing. In heaven were the angels, living creatures, elders, holy creatures, all, who were able to exist in the presence of God. Approach God they could, but open the scroll they could not, not even Michael the archangel. From elsewhere in scripture, we learn that Michael had great power. Daniel 10, Jude 9 and Revelations 12. But even he was not worthy to open the scroll. And that's understandable, for angels are but servants. No one on earth was able to open the scroll either. We read that and say, of course no one on earth was able to open the scroll or to answer the angel's call. After all, on earth are men, and men are but dust. And yes, beloved, but that's, that's true. But remember the passage we read from Genesis 1, verse 26. God had elevated this dust-become-man to such a glorious place in his creation. By God's decree, we were to have dominion over all the earth, over every creature, we're to control the world. David reflects in Psalm 8 on this dominion and says in verse 5, 
that we have a place just under God. In a scale of 1 to 10, with God at 10, we, says David, are at 9. Such is the exalted position God has given to us. We're to have dominion over God's world, to rule with God over his creation. So when the strong angel of Revelation 5 cried out in search of someone worthy to open that scroll containing God's plan for the history of the world, people should be lining up to take that scroll from God's hand and open it. That's the implication of Genesis 1. But see, none are worthy. None can come into the presence of God and none is able to open it. Here, congregation, is a terrible effect of the fall into sin. Because of that fall, we are too sinful to approach God and we have lost dominion over God's world. So, no one on earth can take the scroll and open it. John speaks also of under the earth. From elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that there is a netherworld to which God has consigned the fallen angels. Jude 6, and those who die without faith. From this collection of created beings, too, none responded to the call of the angel. None was able to take the scroll from God's hand, not even Satan. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. What does that mean? This, no one is able to make God's plan for the world happen. God's plan, that of course would be advantageous for the church. But no one can put that plan into action. What then, oh what, is going to happen to the church? And John knew it so well. The church of his day needed help, needed help so much Pentecost, it had all started out so wonderfully with thousands of conversions to the faith and the general population holding the Christians in high esteem. What love there had been among the brethren too, what unity and what enthusiasm. But ever since the initial spurt of success, it had been downhill all the way. There were divisions in the churches and fights, there was apostasy and need for admonitions. Just look at Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's own letters. And the esteem with which the community held the Christians had disappeared. Persecution followed persecution. John himself was exiled to Patmos on account of the gospel. Revelations 2 and 3 chronicle so much of the troubles facing the churches in John's day. And John on Patmos could not do a thing about it. And now he finds out that no one can open the scroll of God's plan, that no one can make happen what God has promised for his church. What does it help then that God loves the church and gave his son for her? The church is going to be snuffed out, destroyed through political oppression and through Christian hearts too weak to resist heresy and embrace brotherly love. 
No wonder, beloved, no wonder that John wept, wept so much. There was no hope left. And it's clear, brothers and sisters, that if John saw the need to weep so much on account of what he saw in heaven, we on earth do well to follow his cue and weep also, for we have no future either. Our second point, the answer to tears. John's tears in heaven brought about a reaction, verse 5. One of the elders has something to say to John. One of the elders, that's one of those around the throne of God, one of those who attend to God, he's fully aware of the latest developments. He draws a new matter to John's attention. Do not weep, he says. Instead, behold, look carefully. Over there, he says, look, there's one who's conquered, one who is victorious. Who that person is? The elder mentions two names. The first name he mentions is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That phrase comes from Jacob's words in Genesis 49, verse 8 to 10. On his deathbed, Jacob blessed his sons and prophesied in the spirit that Judah would have dominion, would rule over his brothers, yes, over all nations. As a result, his brothers would praise him. Why? Not only because Judah would be exalted to a position of kingship, but also because his kingship would benefit the brothers. Genesis 49 verse 8. Judah's hand shall be on the neck of his enemies, and so all Israel would benefit. Verse 10 says the same. To him shall be the obedience of the people. But people is plural. In other words, all people would submit to this line of the tribe of Judah. The second name the elder mentions is Root of David. That's a most intriguing name. For a root is something quite different than a branch. A branch grows out of David, is a product, an offspring. But a root is a source, an origin. In other words, the elder tells John that the one who prevailed is the cause, cause, the source of David's throne. And indeed, what were the chances that David would ever become king? He was the youngest of his family. He was persecuted by Saul. His future was hopeless. And even when David became king, his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah his counting of the people, etc., dictated that he should be disposed, deposed, sorry. But behind David was a source, and that source kept him going. This unlikely shepherd boy became king, and he ruled with God over God's people, was even a man after God's heart, carried out God's wishes for Israel it with so much brokenness and that was all because someone else was the root out of which David grew because of that root David could become a distinct blessing for Israel he enlarged Israel's borders and overcame Israel's enemies 
as per Genesis 49. Now, congregation, when you hear this elder tell John, look and observe one whose name is the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, what image arises in your mind? What would you expect to see? Surely, beloved, we're expecting to see someone who exudes might and power, a mighty one. But look at verse 6. John looks as the angel commanded, and what does he see? There in the midst of the throne of God, and the four living creatures and elders, that's right, in the presence of God and his cabinet ministers, his advisers, is a lamb. What a letdown. Given the names the elder mentions, you expect to see a lion, and all you see is a lamb. A lamb, by nature, the animal is vulnerable, weak. What's more, a definition, by definition, a lamb never stays a lamb. Either he becomes a ram or a lamb chop. A lamb, what good is that in light of the strong angel's call for someone to open the scroll? John is made to look a bit closer... This lamb is standing. He's standing there and, according to the Greek tense of the verb, he keeps standing there. That's so remarkable, for this lamb looked as though it had been slain. In other words, its throat had been slit, for that's how lambs were slain. But a lamb with a slit throat cannot stand, can it? Yet this one is standing there's more that's remarkable about this lamb. This lamb has seven horns. Horns in the Bible are symbolic of power. This lamb then, though once slain, is powerful, very powerful because he has seven horns. He also has seven eyes. And the point is that this lamb, though once slain, sees all, now misses nothing. In fact, this lamb that should be dead controls the seven spirits of God, controls the Holy Spirit. It is obvious this lamb is most unique. And see, this lamb comes into action, verse 7. This lamb approaches the one on the throne, and we read, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. How amazing. God's thunder and his lightning did not destroy him. And the living creatures and the angels who guarded the throne of God did not stop him. This lamb that should be dead was welcome in the presence of God, was welcome to take the scroll from the right hand of God Almighty. In fact, the angels and living creatures and elders who did not stop him fell down to worship. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, they exalted. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We understand. That's a reference to what happened on Golgotha. The lamb was slain indeed, but he arose from the dead. And see, that lamb is no more on earth, but in the presence of God in heaven. 
Through his sacrifice on Calvary, he earned the right to enter the presence of God and not be consumed. He could ascend and then receive a place in heaven, not in some distant corner, but was free to come into the very presence of God himself. What's more, exactly because of his work on the cross, he was worthy to take that scroll, to open it and so to make happen the things that God ordained should happen in the history of the world. No wonder the songs of the angels and the elders grows. Verse 11, John looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the number of the heavenly choir was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The multitudes of angels pick up the substance of the first singers and they cry out for all creation to hear. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. The one who died on the cross, the one who ascended into heaven is worthy of all honour for he rightly can control history. And look, beloved, how the song grows still more. Verse 13. Every creature in heaven above and every creature on earth below and every creature under the earth and such as are in the sea join the heavenly choirs in jubilant exaltation. All creatures, great and small, feathery and fishy and furry, from angels to demons, join in praise. For all creatures understand that the approach of the Lamb to the throne and his taking the scroll is most significant. Here is reason for all to dry up tears, for all mourning and groaning to cease, reason to burst forth into song. It's the message of Revelation 5. Away, away with all tears. Let earth and heaven and all creation rejoice because the Lamb of Calvary has taken the scroll from God's hand. Yet why, brothers and sisters, why is taking, his taking the scroll such a reason to birth, burst out into song? Why? That, beloved, is because of who this Lamb is. He is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. That is, he is mighty, and his might is for the benefit of his people. This mighty king is at the same time the lamb who was sacrificed, fulfilment of the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. This lamb gave himself for our sins. Yes, he emptied himself to obtain our redemption and triumphed. So this lamb is also the fulfilment of Genesis 49. His hand is on the neck of his enemies, and those enemies are ultimately sin and Satan. So, God, God no longer sees us as sinful. Truly, here is the gospel. This Christ also sends out his Holy Spirit to renew sinners so that we are enabled again to have dominion over God's world, can rule with God again, carry out his plan for the world. This, brothers and sisters, is the crux of the matter. The Lion of Judah, 
the roots of David could triumph and did. He, the Lamb of verse 6, triumphed in his work and so we are restored, can have dominion again. In the words of verse 10, you have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. Christ, true man, opened the way for you and me again to carry out the mandate of Genesis 1, verse 26. Christ was made lower than the angels. He was slain lamb, but there he stands and takes the scroll so that he, true man, might make God's plan for the world come about. A man has ascended into heaven, and to him was given all authority in heaven and on earth. Yes, all things in all the world were put under his feet. Then it's true that Revelation 6 tells us what happens when this lamb opens the seals of the scroll. How the plagues of God fall upon the earth. Plagues that we see happening on the news of our own day. But now we know. Christ is in control. He who laid down his life for us. So there is no place for despair in this world. Despite the apostasy and the evil, there is only room for optimism. Christ makes God's plans happen, and therefore paradise will be restored. So we today, after we've read the newspapers or hear the news, do not give ourselves to tears as John did, but we join the choirs of Revelation 5 and praise our King with every creature. Glory to the King of Angels, glory to the Church's King, glory to the King of Nations, heaven and earth your praises bring. Hallelujah, hallelujah to the King of glory sing. Amen. <laughs>